many grenades we got? Three each! Use them! are like Christmas. They come around every year. We usually look forward to them. We know they're going to be full of time-tester traditions. And once they're done, they leave us feeling bloated and sleepy. (laughs) Christmas and sequels are about focusing on those we truly love most. And if what you love most is an outnumbered, outgunned, wise, cracking action hero who can't catch a break, well then, yippee-ki-yay, Merry Christmas, because we're here to talk about 1990s Die Hard 2. Die Harder. I'm Kelly Powers. And I'm Brent Phillips. Now, Brent, yes, I know. 1990, what are we doing? Surely (laughs) this goes against... You told me you had a plan. I'm very curious. Surely this flies in the face of all we have previously established. They even have a line that's like, welcome to the 90s, pal. (laughs) (laughs) I think that should kick us off, actually. That should definitely be the clip that kicks us off. But I have a four-point argument in favor of this film for our podcast. Uh, Point number one, shut up. Point number two, sorry about the shut up thing, that that was out of line. Uh, But three, this is a movie that is itself based on a novel by an author named Roderick Thorpe called Nothing Lasts Forever. I'm sorry. Sorry, no. This was not based on the novel. This was based on the novel. Uh, all right, back up. We'll we'll t- we'll take that out in editing. <laughs> this movie we definitely won't. <laughs> this movie was based on uh, a novel called Fifty Eight Minutes by an author named Walter. It's either Walter Wager or Walter Wager. I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but. Okay. It was it was a novel written and published in 1987 called 58 Minutes. And the movie itself is a sequel to another movie, as we discussed last Christmas. Die Hard was based on another novel called Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe, which was itself a sequel to another novel called The Detective, which had previously... But those- but the two novels are not related? No. Not the same author, not the same characters. Die Hard 2 is based on a completely different book with a completely different character. They just deadlifted the entire plot from this novel. That's super weird. It is super weird. So, and again, it's it's changed in... You, know, you remember how we talked last year how uh, the... The novel Nothing Lasts Forever, which Die Hard was based on, in the novel it was the the main character trying to reconcile with his daughter who worked at the Nakatomi building, and it wasn't a wife. Right, right. Well, in this novel, 
uh, 58 minutes, it's a character who is meeting his daughter at the airport. It's her plane coming in, and he's trying to save her life. They love daughters, man. I guess. It's bizarre. But again, this was a book from the 80s. Um, and then, of course, the movie itself is a sequel to Die Hard, which was a very 80s movie. So I kind of feel like we are justified in still covering this film. <laughs> I, I mean, wildly disagree, but also... Only on the basis that once we had gotten through the Illuminati's movies that were like the cream of the crop, I wanted to do Illuminati's. Well, <laughs> we could stick this in the tank. So we could just we could just say this is it, <laughs> or I mean, we could just say this is a this is a foretaste. Yeah, this is of Illuminati's. Illuminati's foretaste. It is a sequel to a, a very well-known 80s property. I don't know. In a, in a way, I think it's like 80s Descendant. <laughs> he says, welcome to the 90s. <laughs> he sure does. It's true. <laughs> Plus, let's be upfront with our tens of listeners out there, Brent. We we originally planned on doing uh, Lethal Weapon, but unfortunately, we then realized they already remade Lethal Weapon. Yeah, although in this movie, one of the the old lady has a magazine with Lethal Weapon on it. I saw that. I was like, huh. And it's my understanding. Paying homage. Yeah, and it's my understanding that uh, like Bruce Willis and Mel Gibson were offered each other's roles in those two movies. Like Mel Gibson had a shot at being John McClane in Die Hard, and Bruce Willis had a shot at being Riggs in Lethal Weapon. And they both decided to go with the other roles. I mean, clearly it worked out for both of them, but I'd be really interested to see... I, I mean, I think Mel Gibson could do John McClane. I would be really interested to see uh, Bruce Willis's rigs, though. I think that would be bananas. Yeah, that would be. That would be a great, great thing to watch if we could just travel to that alternate dimension. Um, so... When when I when we were thinking, well, what else are we going to do? We, we're not going to do Lethal Weapon, and we thought, well, you want to just do the next Die Hard? We did Die Hard for Christmas last year. We could do the next Die. Hard. It's also set at Christmas. I think this is the last Die Hard movie that is set at Christmas. It's just the first two. Three is definitely not set at yeah, Christmas. I don't. I don't think there's any Christmas in the rest. Of Four might be. I don't really remember. I'll have to take your word for it. In five, you could not pay me to watch again. <laughs> not even to So find we'll it. never know. <laughs> um, it uh, it made me because when when we thought of hey let's just watch the next Die Hard, and I looked it up on IMDb just to refresh my memory about it, and I saw the Die Hard Two Die Harder, and I thought <laughs> is that really part of the title? It's not, thank God. It's not actually... Oh, it's not? It's just the tagline? Like, when Uh. the movie starts, and the movie starts with this really loud, like, like a a gunfire noise as the title card comes up. Yeah. And it's just Die Hard 2. There's no Die Harder in the title card. Uh, That's fair. Okay. But um, it made me start thinking about sequels in general, and sequels to 80s properties... 
And I remembered, like, all the worst sequels made to those properties had a couple of things in common. One, they would use the word T-O-O instead of the number two. So it would be like (laughs) Teen Wolf 2. Luke Who's Talking 2. Also. (laughs) And then the other thing that they would do is they would have someone you cannot... You cannot have not be in the sequel. The most... Important character around whom the movie revolves, they would replace that character for the scene. <laughs> like, like in Teen Wolf 2, for instance, Scott's not in the movie. It's his cousin. Yeah, that part's weird. I think uh, Mannequin 2 also got rid of... Oh, both, yeah, yeah, yeah. Both the original Mannequin and the guy who fell in love with the Mannequin were not in the movie. Well, I never really understood... I mean, like, <laughs> we're going off on a tangent here. But I almost thought Mannequin 2 was just a retelling of Mannequin 1 with different people. It was weird. Because doesn't he discover the whole... The whole Mannequin Discovery thing happens all over again. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a minute since I've seen it. I don't but, think he's the same guy. I don't know if he's... But no, it, it, it's definitely a universe where the stuff that happened in Mannequin happened separately. Because the guy Hollywood is also in Mannequin 2... And he knows what's going on because he was there for when it happened to the first guy. And so he understands about this mannequin coming to life. <laughs> it's just, oh, you know, it's gold, I'm sure. Okay. Um, so anyway, the title uh, cards what, come up. What? what year was Mannequin? Mannequin? I don't know. You can have the boys in the lab check on that. 87. Yeah. Andrew McCarthy was the first one. Yeah, with, uh, with, what's her name from Sex and the City? Um, can't remember her name off the top of my head. Which one? Uh. That's, there's at least four girls in Sex and the City. Yes, but there's only one of them in Mannequin. She's, uh. Kim Cattrall. Kim Cattrall. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. I saw Mannequin many, many times, I'm sure. Mannequin 2. I saw it, like, once. God, I saw I saw the movie so many times. Um, <laughs> it probably does not hold up at all. Um, when when Die Hard Two starts off, there, I think it's pretty clear that they're going to do everything they can to make this bigger and louder and like turn it up to eleven if they can possibly dial it up from what it was in Die Hard, every facet that they can. I mean, we don't have Hans Gruber. That's that's terrible. There's nothing you can do about that. Killed him off. No, they were super over the top. Like, uh, to its detriment. Oh, yeah. In, yeah. A, in a big way. So, yeah, let's... Spoiler. Die Hard 2 is not as good as Die Hard. Oh, no. No. <laughs> it's not even fucking close. No, not at all. It's, you know, <sighs> I, still don't, I still don't not like it. I thought it was fine. But it was nowhere near as much fun as the first one. And it's weird because yeah. this movie... Like, I, uh, I I know I took some notes here somewhere. This movie has um, increased the body count insanely from the first one. Like, there is... Yeah, here we go. Um, where is it? There was some... There was some... I can't find the... Oh, yeah. So in, in Die Hard, the first one, there's 23 people who, who are killed throughout the entirety of Die Hard. 23. 
In Die Hard 2, there's 271 okay. people who were killed. I mean, are you counting planes blowing You're up? You're counting plane crews, yeah. See, I don't know if you get if you get to count that. I think I you got to see them die on screen. But we see their little like the t- stuffed teddy bear blowing around in the dust on the runway. I guess. <laughs> I guess my point is, even if you take out the the freebies of the hundreds of people that blew up on the plane, there's still a lot more people killed. Oh yeah, I think yeah. Um. We start off pretty uh, pretty easy with uh, McLean getting a parking ticket. It t- took me forever to f- realize what city this was taking place in. All I could tell was there was snow. I thought at first we were in New York, but we're not. Um, and McLean just... Wait, was he... He was, wasn't he? No, he wasn't in... This, this does not take place in New York. McLean... Where is it? So McLean has now moved from New York, where he lived in the first film. He's moved to Los Angeles to be near Holly. Yeah, he's LAPD. He says. So now he's LAPD. This is, by the way, is the only movie where he's LAPD. The rest, he's always New York. Because he's not in the third, no. No, because things don't last with Holly. Uh, but in this Aww. movie, he's making it work for a little while. He moved to LA, transferred to their division. And this movie takes place in uh, DC. They're. They're uh, staying with Holly's parents for Christmas. Oh, and I guess they just happen to live there. All right. And Holly's parents live in D.C. And that's where they're at. They're at Dulles International Airport. Which took me forever to figure out. Um, so, quickly after establishing that he's still with Holly, that they're trying to make it work, and that he's waiting for her at the airport with his mother-in-law's car that has been towed away... Uh, we see a naked William Sattler doing Tai Chi. <laughs> and holy crap, this man is ripped. He was looking good. Like, he he was super ripped. Yeah, my note was... <laughs> this was my first clue that this one might be a little over the top. Yeah. Was like a full minute of naked karate. Yep. And did you see his flare with the remote control? Oh, yeah. <laughs> He shoots the TV off like it's a gun with the remote control. Like somebody just surprised him and he destroys him with the remote. And like the movie tries to play that off as like cool or threatening. It does not. But like at the end of the day, he's just a naked dude in his hotel room, like shooting his remote <laughs> at the TV. <laughs> like what is this? Dude? What's happening? <laughs> do you uh, do you are you familiar with William Sadler with the works of William Sadler? Oh yeah, he's great, man. Yeah, he really is. I I loved him in. Uh, the old version of Roswell. Not the current version of Roswell, but the one that was the original Roswell. Oh, I mostly know him as the Grim Reaper from Bill and Ted's Bogus... <laughs> or, or whichever one he, the Bo- Grim Reaper shows. Bogus Journey, and also in this latest one that came out, uh, Face the Music, he's the Grim Reaper again. Nice. I know yeah. he he's a he's in a lot of stuff. Like, he's always, like, the head henchman or whatever. Yeah. In, like, a thousand movies. Yeah, and he's going to be our Hans Gruber. Like, I know that he works technically. He ends up, we find out he technically works for that general. But really, he's our main bad guy for for the entirety of the movie. The general shows up kind of at the 11th hour, and he doesn't do anything. Um, yeah, the... I mean, I, I guess we can get, in this, get into this, but like... Man, did they, they not learn any lessons of why Die Hard 1 was good is that, like, the villain was likable and had a very, like, clear goal. 
Yeah. And in, he was even he was even nice to his hostages in Die Hard One. <laughs> this guy nice is enough. <laughs> the ones that he let live anyway. This guy's not very nice to anybody. No, he's a dick. He's not even nice to his soldiers. Like he doesn't have particular honor about anything, even though that seems to be like his driving force, or at least that's kind of what they would lead you to believe is that he's loyal to this general. And it's like, what a foreign general! Like, why are you? Yeah, I never quite understood why uh, they were the, the, this That guy. just makes no sense. That guy, and like, oh, it must be pretty convincing to pull him and his you know uh, his other counterpart guy the uh, i can't oh yeah yeah the the colonel yeah or the major whatever he is yeah i I never really understood yeah grant i never understood why they were working for the general in the first place i mean obviously it is about the money they're not shy about saying that we're going to make you very wealthy men and you're going to live on a caribbean island somewhere and we're all going to be drinking Mai Tais or whatever. But I would have loved to have seen some sort of twist. Like, you think it's this straight, you know, thing where he's getting the the colonel out and then he turns around and shoots him and makes it about something else. And, like, I don't know. That that would have been a very diehard thing to do. It would have. And they just don't. Yeah, and <laughs> They he's, don't explain any of it. He's a real jerk to his own men. That The one guy who comes in to tell him, just to tell him that things went wrong at the airport and there's somebody who has a gun and and got you know one of our guys got shot he holds a gun against the guy's head and almost kills him right then and there just for telling him bad news it did things yeah i don't i don't get the uh yeah i mean Um, i guess they're trying to make him threatening but like again we just learned from the previous movie there's no way this screenwriter didn't watch it yeah. That that's not that's not the point. There's a thousand movies with a threatening villain. Make an interesting villain. Also and they did not. Do you remember in in the first Die Hard, they decide they originally everybody was just a terrorist. Then they decided the terrorism should just be a cover for what they really are, which is thieves. And that made it much more fun. Right. Because yeah, terror- this this terrorism needed that so second fun. pass. Here they're just terrorists, really. I mean, yes, these guys are getting paid for their terrorism. But they're not stealing anything. It's not a heist movie. It's not. It's not them pulling the wall over anyone's eyes. They are literally there to cause terror and mayhem and and get this uh, criminal to uh, escape custody. And so it's a lot less fun than Gruber's guys. Uh, The boys in the lab are telling me that Stephen D'Souza was one of the writers on Die Hard and is also the main screenwriter for this. So it makes me wonder if like someone else maybe this was done uh, really quickly. Die Hard 2 came out two years after Die Hard. That's pretty quick turnaround. That is very quick for a sequel. Yeah. And you gotta figure out. Maybe, they he, just, maybe writing, he just didn't have enough time in the oven. I don't know. When did know. they start writing that script? Like the day after Die Hard opened? Right. And then they're like holy shit we need more of this. Yeah. Um, but one thing that Sattler does have going for him is he's got Robert Patrick. Uh, <laughs> I wrote that down. The t- I wrote down T-1000. <laughs> that is the T-1000, a very baby-faced Robert Patrick. He looked so young. Oh, now. he's so young. And he doesn't really have a lot to do, but I thought it was great just seeing him. 
and these painter painter uh, guys. Speaking of man, uh, Terminator is eighties. Sure. And I realize our our shtick is things getting remade. And man, have they remade Terminator a lot of times. But that's I have such lost a good movie. track. I mean, do they have any kind of coherent narrative anymore? Because they just rebooted and rewrote, right? So it's been rebooted like they three just times. they just rebooted twice in a row. I think. I will say I saw the I saw the one. I think I saw the second to last one, but I didn't see the last one with the with the girl Terminator helping out. Or no, it did. See, I don't know, man. But yeah, they re they redid it a lot. I will say I really loved the TV show that they did for a little while with. Uh, oh yeah, that was good. What's her name from Firefly was in there as as the T as the Terminator. She was awesome. And, uh, and Cersei Lannister. Cersei. Yeah, yeah. She was, she was killing it. Yeah. She's a great Sarah Connor. That was a really cool show. I'm so I was bummed when that didn't make it to another season. Um. So sorry, totally derailed you. Yeah, but anyway, uh, Colonel Stewart walking around the airport, I was surprised that our main villain was instantly recognizable by many people in the airport. He has zero cover. He's just walking around and everyone's like, reporters are coming up to him saying, hey, aren't you? What? It wasn't he like recently disgraced? Like he'd been kicked out of his position or something? Yeah, like why isn't this guy in prison? Or at least have, like, you know, someone watching him. Well, they have that one uh, poor, unfortunate reporter who just asks him for a simple quote for her paper so she can go celebrate Christmas already. And his goon pushes her away and says, no pictures, you pinko bitch. (laughs) And I thought, good lord. That seems a little harsh. Apparently that was... In the moment, that's not in the script. That's just the, the, the actor getting into character, I suppose. And then that quickly from there, we're into McLean just sort of seeing uh, guys with suspicious looking packages and maybe carrying guns, follows them into a restricted area of the airport. I gotta say, every restricted area of this airport is bizarre. They have... Miles and miles of underground tunnels that just seem to go nowhere. Steam pipes all over the place for no reason. Why an airport has so much steam, I can't understand. Yeah, I don't know, man. And, like, there's a moment when he goes down into the, you know, into the basement zone. Mm-hmm. Like, first thing he does is uh, get in a ventilation shaft. <laughs> and you're like, okay, I think you guys are bringing the wrong things from Die Hard into Die Hard 2. <laughs> He wants to make himself it's like that can't be the best way to travel around when you've got all these like pipes you or you've got all these know. like hallways and stuff. It's like, no, nah, we this dude belongs in a ventilation shaft. We learned that last time. <laughs> Give him a lighter. Make sure he's got a lighter. Take his shoes off if you can find a reason to do it. Right. Um, but apparently, all that stuff with the underground tunnels that he's constantly running through—that was all some water distribution plant in L.A. and Thank God, because I thought there's no reason for an airport to have any of this crap. I, I don't understand why an airport would look like this. In fact, the one room that I thought had to have been at an actual airport was the, this first battle where he gets into the scrape with the two guys says, hey, this is a restricted area. Let me see some ID. And they start shooting at McLean. 
Yeah. This, this room is full of conveyor belts, just sending luggage various places. And it looks very much like, uh, was it in Toy Story when they fall through the conveyor belts and they're... And... <laughs> yeah. So it must be true. Yeah. It's just endless miles of <laughs> conveyor belts. And one of the goons gets killed on a conveyor belt. And the reason he dies is because there's some sort of metal arm that is smushing luggage. <laughs> And it smushes his head. And that's what happens. And I'm thinking, You know, is, the luggage smusher. What is the purpose of this device to crush cut the <laughs> luggage of our customers? It makes no sense. I love it. I love it. And apparently um, that, that uh, whole footage of the head crushing incident had to really be finessed because it mat- uh, apparently it was much longer and more graphic originally. And, no. and the studio was like, we can't, we can't make this. You know, we don't want this to be like a NC-17. We, we want an R rating if we have to, but that's it. That's crazy. Um, so... And, yeah. up, to be clear, up until this point, I'm still really into the movie. Like, I like I really like John McClane getting... Just doing his job, you know, getting stuck in situations. This is yeah, me too. We have not, we have not left the rails yet. He sees something suspicious. He's just like, hey, what's going on? And then things go nuts, and he does just does the best with what he has. Right, but I did feel like even at this point, I was starting to notice something different in John, the character. What I loved about him so much in the first movie was that he was just a guy who wanted nothing to do with any of this excitement. And was trying to get through it as best he could, but this McLean seems more gung ho about about his fights than the previous McLean. Like he, oh he grabs, for sure, yeah. He grabs a tiger shark golf bag and just starts <laughs> four at the at the goon. And, <laughs> and that's another thing. Is I've seen this in many movies where someone attacks you with a golf club, and all I always think is, it's on this long thin stick. It can't be a very good weapon to get any kind of leverage on a person. A golf Not unless you hit him with the end of it. If you hit him with the stick part, I mean, it it would sting. I wouldn't want to be hit with it, but like if you got the hit with the end of it, it really hurt. Even the end of it, though, it's just, its weight is all in the ball at the end. It can't, I don't know, I don't know. It just seems like it wouldn't be very damaging to you. Why don't you hit me with the golf I think if you get hit with the the head of the club, I bet it hurts a, a whole hell of a lot. You know Tiger Shark paid for that product placement. Um, I was reading. Uh, an yeah, I read something like this was the first movie with product placement. I was reading an article. Oh no, about... no, no, no! It wasn't. Sorry, far. <laughs> they got in trouble because they were supposed to do product placement with Black and Decker, but they cut the scene. <laughs> yeah, and Black and Decker. They, yeah, can you imagine Black and Decker pays them to to endorse their product like a cordless drill or something, and then they just cut the scene? It's like, what do you mean you cut the scene? That's not part of our contract. Yeah, you it makes you wonder. That. Makes me wonder what the scene was. Is... <laughs> Oh, with a like, drill, you does he like drill someone's face? It's like, how is that an ad for Black and Decker? How <laughs> else true. are they going to get it in this movie, though? Yeah, I don't know. Um, the yeah, the, con- the, the the conveyor belt presser thing, I, I just really didn't understand its purpose. Um, we move from that to uh, the plane finally, and we see Holly up on the plane. She's eager to get back to John Land and uh, the douchey reporter from the first one is there dick thornburg who we loved in the first one but we didn't get a lot of time with him in the first one 
Um, we get a ton of time with him this time. Him and Holly for both. no particular reason. I mean, Holly. We, I guess we got plenty of Holly last movie too, but this time lots of him. Well, uh, so what I don't get. So like, he's a dick. Everyone's being. He gets his comeuppance repeatedly, but like when he stumbles upon what's happening with the terrorist thing and is reporting on it. Why is that bad? Like, um, Holly steals causing... a taser and goes and tases him in the bathroom, and it's like, why are you doing this? I guess because he was causing a... And he did. He set off a massive panic inside the airport. As opposed to what? As opposed to not having a massive panic inside the airport. I know, but, like, it's a, it's a panic event. They're going to find out at some point. Well, I mean... Not at, I don't know. I don't. I felt like he got vilified. Like he's a dick, but I feel like he got vilified for doing something that was his literally his job. Like he wasn't putting anyone in danger. Really, he wasn't break. Like in the first one, it was clear he was blowing McLean's cover and putting her kids in danger. That's true. And this one, he didn't like cross any lines. He just did his job, and he was actually pretty clever about how he got the information and. I love uh, the still they throw up of his publicity photo when he goes live on the air. It was the worst picture of him. That was pretty great. Um, yeah, I mean, I can yeah, see. Yeah, I, did, I didn't buy that. No, I can see your point. Um, you know, the other thing is, no one got mad at the other reporter that was on the ground that was that was doing exactly was, the same stuff. She was doing yeah. exactly the same stuff. Yeah, she just wasn't doing it as well because she didn't get the whole story. Right. Oh well. Um, and then we meet Captain Lorenzo, who's head of airport security, played by Dennis Franz. And now I'm thinking, okay, we have another parallel for characters from the first movie. This is clearly the um, the police officer who's going to be as unhelpful as possible. Just like the guy from the first one who was the, the Breakfast Club principal. Never did get the actor's name. Well, one of the things I wrote down was that in the first movie, a lot of the problems with the with the LAPD were was that they were inept yeah. and maybe a little bit like you know ignorant but like in this one he's just an asshole he's not actually a bad cop like several times Lorenzo does the right thing I felt like he even before his to... like he even before his redemption time when when they find out that Grant's a dick he's he's a good guy from there on out but like even before that, like, he's not wrong. Like, get this rando out of the flight tower. <laughs> no, but, I mean, come on. When he's telling McLean, we can't, we're gonna, we're not gonna cordon off the the crime scene. We're, we're gonna have people go in there after Christmas and check out for, for Prince. Like, yeah, sure. That works. That That's complete BS. He's just I don't trying think to... he is, man. He, what's, I mean, like, he should have run it up the chain, I guess, but, like, I get it. Is he going to shut down the entire fucking Dulles airport on Christmas? They would do that now. To deal if with whatever you had, If you had... Now. I mean, in a post-9-11 world, of course. That's true. Yeah, I mean, that's a different world. But still, it always seemed to me like Lorenzo was trying to uh, just CYA the entire time. But not even... He didn't even need to because his boss was not some hard-ass jerk. His boss was very reasonable and open yeah, it was a very to suggestion. Nice guy. Yeah, so I didn't understand really why Lorenzo was so paranoid about about 
causing problems or making waves. So much so that he seemed to basically help the criminals in every way possible. He shouldn't have been because he could have shut down the airport and his boss would have been like, well, if this is what we have to do. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I as I get older, I find myself sympathizing with a lot of the people that are supposed to be the villains in these movies. <laughs> he does like he's uh, just like these people that are just trying to do their fucking job and John McClane's just showing up and ruining it. <laughs> McClane has a joke here that does not work. It just I couldn't understand it. He says to Lorenzo, Hey Lorenzo, what sets off the metal detectors first? The uh what is it? The lead in your ass or the shit in your brains? And I'm going, the metal detectors? What are you talking about? <laughs> I know there are metal detectors at an airport. I understand that, but neither did the shit in your Well, guess what, John? I guarantee you it's not the shit in his brains. They're not made out of metal. <laughs> it's going to be the lead in his ass, I suppose. It was a I mean, joke. I guess the lead in the ass is calling him lazy, but like, you're right. The joke just doesn't make any sense. McClane. Like, so much so that it's not a bad joke. It straight up doesn't make sense. So you're not left just letting it, hang, letting it hang. You're you're sitting there like, what? And I love that like he has... uses that as his out. Like, McLean's like, drop the mic. I'm out of this scene. And everyone just well, stands and watches him like, what did he say? It makes me, it makes me wonder if that one was ad-libbed by Bruce Willis or oh, not like maybe. I know they let him just kind of run with a lot of his shit oh, <laughs> and man. Bruce Willis is probably like I think this line is great we're gonna keep it and they're like shit we can't really argue with Bruce Willis anymore it's like I'm a producer on this film you're gonna add this line in yeah. I don't know if he's actually a producer on this film um, we finally get to hold of uh, our old pal Al Powell played by Reginald Vell Johnson yeah um, he gets his this his is just two one minutes of screen scene. time yeah, he's only in this one scene. That's it, the whole movie. And that I really he feel give, like he, he gets to give uh, he gets to give the results back a little bit later. Yeah, but I really feel like it was. Uh, I missed him. I felt like we were missing something with him not in the rest of the film. Um, it was also fun that uh, <laughs> we have another parallel of the girls who can't stop flirting with John. Um. The woman who runs the desk whose fax that he steals? Just the fax, ma'am. And he takes over her fax, yeah. And she's <laughs> like, hey, I get off it, whatever. Maybe we can go talk about what a great guy you are or something. I don't know what she's saying. <laughs> but it was just like the flight attendant and uh, and the waitress at the cocktail party all over again. They just all elevator eyes for John. He's just at least well in the first one it was more John had eyes for them as opposed to this one like she's just fawning over him. That's true. Yeah. Um, we see John Leguizamo pop up out of nowhere, uh, hacking into a power grid. <laughs> I I saw that in the IMDb <laughs> trivia thing. Which character was John Leguizamo? What? He was this dude who, for some reason, you know, they took over that church right as their base of operations. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's, for some reason, using a chainsaw to open up a power grid next to the church. Like, there was like a chain, no, it was a chainsaw, it was guys? a blowtorch. He was using a blowtorch to access this power grid. And then he, he wires them into the airport power grid from the church. And that's all Man, he did. I, I missed that. I'm usually, I'm usually pretty good at stuff like that. Like, I mean, obviously I saw Jason Patrick, but I didn't see John Leguizamo at He all. was only in for like two seconds, and his only line, which was something like, 
we're in Colonel, was overdubbed. It's not even his voice. <laughs> that sucks. Yeah, poor John. I don't know. I think I think we can assume he'll go on to do better things with his career. Hey, yeah. I think he's got something. Yeah, he says every goddamn system is out. Um, the the airport says every system is out, but they're still communicating like crazy. With they, they talk to the planes and say we're having some unexpected human error and please stand by. Right. It's like I thought everything was out. I don't know. Um, when the terrorists call in and make their threats and say we're going to crash a plane, what do they say? Like we're going to crash a plane uh, if you don't do as we could demand like what's his name uh lorenzo says he's bluffing and i'm going what are you basing that on this guy just took over all of your power and you know that he's an established threat like they have uh, files on him thanks to al powell's uh work with the fax machine they they know that these are certified terrorists why is lorenzo like what did they bluffing what do they know that he was colonel stewart at the time I don't know if they knew he was Colonel Stewart, but they knew that one of his guys was a wanted international terrorist or, you know. Ah, uh, that's true. That's true. Whatever. I don't know. And then, of course. I get it. You don't like Lorenzo. Well, it's just. <laughs> he's bluffing. Based on what? He hasn't smashed the plane into the ground yet, so. Um, whatever. I'll move on. I'll let it go. Um, <laughs> I think if there's a line that really really uh turns to the camera and talks to the audience in this film it's this this one right here where john says man i can't believe this another basement another elevator how can the same shit happen to the same guy twice <laughs> and we're like yeah that's that's kind of what that it is kind of weird <laughs> <laughs> we were all wondering that john on the same i thought maybe this was the year after christmas but i think it's two years after um, we meet Marvin yeah. the janitor, and Marvin the janitor is the direct parallel of Argyle, the limo driver. He gets John all around the place, and he's his man he's in the a van. Pale imitation of Argyle. It's true. It's true. He's not as good as Argyle. Not that Argyle has a lot to do in the first one, but uh, I don't know. This guy, he just he just seemed there to be like a for, for someone for John to talk to. When he sh- first showed up, when Marvin the janitor first showed up, I thought for a second that it was going to be like uh, that part in the first Die Hard where Alan Rickman is pretending to be a scared executive, and he's actually you know one of the bad guys. He's going to trick McLean. I thought Marvin <laughs> yeah. was one of the bad guys. I really did. <laughs> that would have been great. Yeah, would have been better, I think. Um, there's that whole massacre at the Annex Skywalk. That's I don't know like. Four or five, six people shot dead right there. Um, there's a lot oh, of uh, each of those guys caught like a hundred bullets. Yeah, there's a lot of swearing going on in that scene too, and so much so that I mean, I'm not like a prude or anything. You can swear in films, I don't care. But this was getting ridiculous. In fact, at one point, um, the guy who plays the the head of the airport, the guy that Lorenzo works for, that yeah. actor. That actor went to uh, the director at one point and said, um, this isn't supposed to be a comedy, right? <laughs> he's like, no. I was like, <laughs> he's like, you got way too many swears in here. It's coming off as a comedy. And they had to take out a bunch of them already because there was just too much. Isn't, uh... Is what? So, so isn't the guy that's in charge of the airport 
isn't he like a senator or something? Oh yeah, I, I think you know what I'm talking right about. about? No, I think you're right. I think he after he was, I mean, he's an actor, obviously, but he also went into politics. I'm almost sure you're right. About <laughs> he is. That. He is a senator. Well, I mean, not anymore, but he was. But he was. All right. Sorry. But yeah, um, <laughs> it was again. It, it was just a ton of stuff was just like over the top for no particular reason. Like I don't know if this guy had just finished watching Total Recall or what, but <laughs> yeah. Um, you remember? Uh, yeah, it was. In that massacre at the uh, at the annex Skywalk, that, there's that one guy whose automatic keeps jamming. He's trying. He's yes. trying to pull. Apparently, like that, four times. <laughs> but apparently, that was all real. Apparently, when you fire blanks through an automatic, it causes it often causes the automatic to jam up. Something about the kickback in the in the in the blank. Oh, it's like not enough kickback to right. get the next one through. Yeah. And so that kept happening to the actor. And he was—he wasn't supposed to jam up. It just kept happening to him. So they used a couple times of the footage, and just made it work. But it kept happening over and over again all day long. It kept happening to him. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then Windsor Flight One One Four, piloted by Chief O'Brien from Star Trek: Deep Space Nine and Star Trek: Next Generation. <laughs> yes. Colmini. Poor Chief O'Brien. Colmini goes down and everybody goes down with him. And that is when the body count really starts to up on this movie. Because you do have to take those people into account. They may not be shot, but... Yeah, but they don't even really die. Okay, so the other thing I wanted to say about this is that, like... This plane's going down because they're out of fuel. Right. And they they explode explode. into the largest fireball of all time. That is a good point. Not to mention, I don't think a plane full of fuel would blow up like that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the fireball is like four times the size of the plane. It's just like, what in the world? And yet somehow that little girl's teddy bear is still intact on the runway. Right. Oh, so tragic. Um, And I loved, like, the, the, the the waitress, the stewardess who is comforting the old lady in the seat just before they all plummet to their fiery deaths. She's like, don't worry, love. We're like British Rail. We'll get you there eventually. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're all dead. Um, and this, of course, is just before the arrival of Major Grant, played by John Amos, who I know as Admiral Fitzwallis from the West Wing. But he's in tons of stuff. Oh, okay. Um, John Amos apparently... John Amos and Bruce Willis did not get along at all. Really? Um, Wonder why? I don't know. I looked as uh, I looked for a while trying to find the specifics of their disagreements. All I could find were several articles quoting an interview with John Amos where he says, "Let's just say Bruce Willis is never going to make fun of me in public ever again." I don't know what that. Huh. I don't know what happened there, but that's the, the most I could find out in terms of details. Weird. Yeah. I don't know if, like, Bruce Willis just went off on him during a, a scene and, like, embarrassed him in front of the crew or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, let me ask you something. The, uh, the uh, Major Grant bit. Did, did you buy Major Grant and his men, or were you always suspicious of Major Grant and his men? Oh, no, I bought it. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if I bought it the first time I watched this, but I had forgotten. 
And so I was like, yeah. <laughs> I was ready. <laughs> well, like, I mean, like, there's clearly a nod to, like, they throw you a hint. And once they threw me the hint, I was like, oh, sucks for new guy. Um, like long before they long before they kill him, there's something about like I don't know. They they throw you some sort of hand, and I caught the hand, they, but like before that, I didn't really um, I didn't well, suspect him at all. You know right away that he trained with uh, Sattler's character that they mm-hmm. used to be that they used to be in the same unit. Um, so that's kind of suspicious. So clearly, they both have loyalty to this rando fucking third world general yeah this this drug king from from some <laughs> latin american country hey by the way um the general general espinoza so general espinoza is uh from this made-up country called val verde they, they they go over this on the news when they're talking about it and apparently that means that die hard 2 and the movie Commando is set in the same universe because Valverde is the fictional country from Commando. Well, it's written by the same dude. Oh, well, there it is. Steven D'Souza. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, they're they're official. I like that. He's got his own the the first cinematic universe, the Valverde cinematic universe. Oh, sure. You know the the VVU is is huge. <laughs> Oh man, all the great things they did with the VVU over the years. Um, oh man, love it. So General Espinoza, I liked his bit on the plane where he he uh, is talking to that one soldier, and he's like, "Hey, um, why don't you let me out of these handcuffs?" You know, one one soldier to another, and he's like, "Sorry, General, I can't do that." It's like I understand. How about you just light my cigarette? And all I'm thinking is, kid, do not go over there and light his cigarette, you moron. And he goes over, and he lights his cigarette, and nothing happens. The general just eases back and smokes his cigarette. He's going to kill the kid. But then the later... Kid. Then later, But then later, he gets the kid over there somehow. We don't see. We don't and see it, yeah. But I loved that I was expecting it, and he didn't do it. He just let me just be tense for no reason. I liked that. That was pretty cool. Um... Makes you wonder why they have one guard back there and he, like, just got out of basic training. Yeah, especially if this is the most, uh, this is the biggest political prisoner that that Valverde has. <laughs> well, it was such a big deal that, like, didn't, uh, they, they had, like, fighter jets escort them out of the country because they were worried right. about being, like, attacked in the air. It's like, if you're worried about that kind of heat. Right. Have more than one fucking person in the back of your plane, man. What happened to the fighter jets? I don't remember. Like they were escorting. And they just somehow... once they once they got to the end of Valverde, Valverde airspace, they just peeled off or something. <laughs> it's like, all right, you guys have this, right? You good? All right, we're out of here. And they just it was left. weird because they didn't radio to the plane or anything. It was just the pilots talking about it. They're like, "Well, there goes our escort," and I'm like, "Why?" Okay. I, I thought something was about to happen. I thought. The escort was peeling off because they were dirty, and then an attack was going to come in. But that's not what happened at all. It was very confusing. I don't know why that scene was there. When the general takes over the plane and lands it, he, you know, uh, McLean is out on the runway from having failed to save Chief O'Brien's flight from plummeting into the ground. 
and uh, it almost runs him over. I didn't really care. I didn't think he was going to get run over. It was kind of like, whatever. Right. Yeah, there's there's no chance this movie's <laughs> going to end right now with John McClane getting run over by this plane. Right. Like, that's not how... You can't do tension like that. Like, we're not... I don't know. It's fine. But, but then this leads to John being, you know, chasing him onto the plane and getting trapped on the plane and having to get out, and it leads to the grenades and the injector seat. The... <laughs> when... So, like, I I think I've seen this movie <laughs> like 20 years ago or something, but when, like, he's sitting there and they're like, do the grenades, and they throw a grenade and they're like, you idiots, he's just gonna throw it right back out at you. Yeah. And he just sits there and stares at the grenade, and I'm like, what? what's your plan here, buddy? What's your plan here? And then more grenades keep landing, and they're like... They just keep landing in this fucking cockpit. There was like six grenades in the cockpit. And I'm like, what is ha- what is he supposed to do now? Even, even if he managed to get the door open, the whole plane's going to blow up. <laughs> and he gets in the seat and sees the ejector thing. I'm like, oh, no. No, please don't. Yep. <laughs> he did an Indiana Jones in the refrigerator. <laughs> it's like, dude, this is not a fighter jet. This is like a cargo this was a transport plane. jet. Yeah, <laughs> they do not. Have they do not have ejector seats. So he shoots out of the ejector oh, seat, and and the it's just it's spectacular to watch the the vision of him grimacing as he flies up near the camera, high above the plane, in his ejector seat. But um, according to my brother, who flew in the navy. Um, Every time you use an ejector seat, your body compresses from the G's, and you lose a half inch in height permanently. A half inch—that's so much. Like you lose almost, like you lose almost an inch initially, and about half of that comes back. But you never get back that about half inch. That has to be so much force. Oh, that's insane. And also, can you imagine how that messes up your back and neck? Just insane. I mean, I guess it's better than death. Better the alternative, but like... sure. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, holy crap. So John is going to be popping pain pills for a while, I think. He's, he's already in pain. Um, when they find the church where the, where the bad guys are holed up and headquartered, and Holly makes that really, really poorly timed phone call that sets <laughs> on... <laughs> How had that not come up before? When she was like an hour late, how did she not call John? I don't... I mean, we established they can talk to each other at any time. Right? Like, that's what was so weird is they talked about, like, a couple planes have air phones and these other ones don't. Right, it didn't make any sense because John was like, oh, my, that's my wife Holly's plane and I gotta talk to her. But he could have talked to her at any time. She called him earlier in the movie. And I didn't get, like, and they said the people we can divert have been diverted. And I'm like, well, there's small airports all over the place. Yeah, but you got to have a long enough runway to handle a passenger jet. Not a, the light plane Not if the, al- but if the alternative is landing in a blizzard with no it's, lights. Sure. I think you'll take your chances. Yeah, like, and that's right, the thing. Like, right. if you, if you quote, crash... But you know what you're doing, like, you might knock the landing gear off, and everyone's going to get jostled, but everyone's also going to walk away. Yeah. 
Yeah. I don't know. It was very... Th- that whole part about, like, why you aren't communicating with the planes and, like, keeping certain people in the dark for no particular reason and then being upset when the reporter does report the truth. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't really understand why everyone was being kept in the dark. I don't know. All I know is Holly could have chosen a better time to call John, and John could have switched that... Could have turned his beeper off, for sure. Yeah, that beeper to vibrate. Um, Because this leads to the fight with the dude where John takes him out with an icicle to the eye. (laughs) That... What did you think of that effect? It looked pretty good, I thought. it looked pretty good. I mean, it's gruesome, it's terrible, but it looked real but a lot of time when you do like the the head replacements you know yeah, when like a yeah. head's gonna blow up or you're gonna get stabbed in the head like yeah. it looks really obvious <laughs> yes this one was i thought it was pretty solid like i mean clearly i didn't really do it but like yeah this one apparently this scene and the i liked it and the um luggage smushing machine scene were yeah. the two scenes that had to be reworked and finessed to get the the rating uh acceptable because this was also more gruesome originally apparently. oh crazy more he just kept fish. stabbing his face with the icicle. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what they did. Shortly after that, uh, there's the whole. There's a great scene where I kind of got on back on board with Major Grant because he tells Lorenzo, "Why don't you go wander off and do something useful?" You know, like because Lorenzo's getting on McLean's case and and he yeah. he gets on McLean's side and he tells Lorenzo off and Lorenzo looks so hurt and he goes, "Hey." You can't talk to me like that. <laughs> he was like, "Oh, that's mean." <laughs> he was exactly like that. Oh, you're so mean. Um, so I felt kind of bad for him there. If I was ever going to have any twinge of sympathy for Lorenzo, it was in that scene where he just—he looks so genuinely hurt. <laughs> I felt a little bad for him. Uh, and then, of course, that so, leads. You'll go ahead. I, I don't know when the appropriate time to talk about this is, but. So much of this movie, or I'm sorry, so much of the terrorist plan is predicated on having a blizzard. How so? I mean... Well, A, they had to use snowmobiles to get away. (laughs) Oh, that's true. And B, like, the whole thing is about it being, like, super low visibility and them not being able to land and... Yeah. I don't. I don't think their plan would have worked if it had not had a blizzard. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's strange too because I was reading about during the making of this film. Snow is the one thing that would not cooperate with them. They couldn't get a drop of it when they needed it, and it dumped on them when they were all set up to start filming, and then they had to stop filming. They showed up at like their their shooting locations um, because these places that they were going to shoot typically at this time of the year are covered in snow and it was going to be perfect and they show up yeah. and there's no snow anywhere so they Ugh. they manufacture all of this fake snow all over the place all right we're good to go yeah tomorrow morning we're gonna come in it's gonna be perfect and then a real snow blizzard hits overnight <laughs> and they're like you've got to be kidding me and they couldn't go they couldn't start filming for another like three days it just wouldn't work for them um so snow would not cooperate in the script or in real life um I feel bad that Major Grant killed that kid who replaced the regular guy who was out with appendicitis. Yeah, they, they didn't deserve that. And I wonder about the guy with appendicitis. It's like, after all this has gone down and you realize that Grant's whole un- unit is dirty, Yeah. do you go after appendicitis guy? Well, also, 
I don't know about you, but if if I've committed to a life of you know whatever evil, like the rest of Grant's unit, yeah, and, and I'm totally all in for this for this military action for the forces of evil, I don't I don't know that anything would stop me from committing to this to this mission because if I don't go through with it, I'm not getting the retired life on a on an island with with uh, drinks in my hand like the rest of all my brothers in arms. I'm getting nothing except a day in the hospital. You know, like well, you think he should have. You think he should have gone anyway with appendicitis. Now, listen, as a guy who had appendicitis, <laughs> I wouldn't have done it. But I would think that some tough, you know, badass would have just powered through. I know appendicitis can kill you if you're not careful. But what, what I don't get is the guy had like fucking twelve guys in his unit. If one gets appendicitis and you know you're going to have to murder your replacement guy, just don't bring one. Yeah. Or, you know what else? You don't want to leave that appendicitis guy behind. He could inform on you. This is true. You might want to take out appendicitis maybe they, guy. Maybe, maybe there is no appendicitis guy. Maybe, maybe they when they say he had appendicitis, what they mean is we had to shoot him in the gut. Yeah. Maybe it's that kind of appendicitis. That magical knife that you just gently wave in front of a neck and it, <laughs> it slices all the way through. They use wow. that on him. Yeah, no kidding. At least to give the kid yeah. gum first. <laughs> I guess. Have a juicy fruit. Um, but, uh, I don't know. That's something that always bugs me in movies is like uh, when when someone gets their neck cracked like just with just a little flick of the wrist. Yeah. Or... Um, and this one, Grant cuts that cuts the young guy's throat, just going like, Leep. it's like I'm not saying he wouldn't have bled, but he wouldn't have died. You didn't like cut through the guy's trachea, like yeah. what in the world? All you did was basically give him a, uh, a razor burn, kind of. And for a movie where, like, man, did they not hold back anywhere else? It was weird they didn't like. They overdid the blood, but they didn't like do the actual. Yeah. yeah. Act. I don't know. It was very weird. Um, just real, real quick, on on uh, the incapacities of appendicitis. I uh, <laughs> when, when I was in fifth grade, I was in a play. We were doing uh, "You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown" at school. Okay. And uh, I uh, I had tried out for the play, and I didn't get any of the of the major roles. But I had told the the director, our teacher, that these days in the comics and the cartoons. Linus and Lucy had a baby brother named Rerun, who couldn't speak, but just had thought balloons. And she loved <laughs> that so much that she said, I'm going to put you in as Rerun. You're going to be on the stage. You're not going to speak, but we're going to record your voice thinking things. And we're going to play that over the speakers. And you'll be on stage with like Lucy and Linus and, and company. And you'll hear like, you'll have a line here and there just played over the speakers as you, as you think these <laughs> thoughts. I was like, great. That's awesome. The night of the the play comes around, or the day, the morning of it, and I wake up, and my stomach is killing me. I can't even stand up. And I tell my mom, I was like, I, I can't go to school today. I can't move. And my mother's like, Oh, honey, everyone gets stage fright. It's going to be okay. I know you're nervous. It's gonna be fine. It's like, Mom. It's like I'm nervous. Like, you don't even have any lines. It's like, Mom. It feels like there is a knife digging into my gut. I can't stand up straight. 
And so finally I convinced her that I was... Man, young stupid. appendicitis Kelly really sounds like he has his shit together. He sounds very calm. I, I finally convinced her to, to take me to the doctors, and the doctors are like, um, yeah, I think we should probably operate on him now. And my appendix exploded as they removed it. Oh, shit. Yeah. And so I found out later that at the uh, play that night, <laughs> the teacher comes on and she says uh, to the audience before the play starts, she said, well... We have someone who's out with uh, appendicitis today in the hospital, Kelly Powers. He won't be here, but uh, he'll be with us in spirit, and you'll hear his voice over the speaker. <laughs> Even so they, though there's no character. <laughs> they played my disembodied voice over the speaker, and my and poor Dawn Williver, who, who was my sister Lucy, had to stand on stage and act to no one. <laughs> Sorry, Dawn. That's funny. I was in... Uh, I don't know if it's a good you're a good man Charlie Brown, but some sort of Charlie Brown play, and I was Pigpen, uh-huh. and I had some scene with Lucy, and I don't know where she went. She just didn't show up, oh, no. so I just like walk out onto the stage and like and like not, she showed up for the night. She just didn't show up for our scene. Oh god! And so I'm just out there, and I like just I just start saying both lines. Oh no! <laughs> oh, just, like, you walk knew both away. lines. <laughs> Suddenly, so Pigpen just, is like, just schizophrenic. <laughs> So it's just like Big Ben walks out, has a weird soliloquy with himself, and walks away. <laughs> it's just like great. That's fantastic. I had to I'm glad been. we both have uh, Charlie, Charlie Brown, Brown acting st- stories. It had to have been your good man, Charlie Brown. I don't think there are any other plays. It must have been. Um, when McLean shoots Lorenzo with the blanks in the middle of the airport security station with his automatic weapon. That was a super dangerous move because any of those cops that were on their cop. game. Yeah, should have shot him. They all draw their arms and they, they, they're all aiming at him. He would have been lit up 12 different ways doing that. That was, uh, yeah. I mean, I of the sins of this movie, yeah. I think that this is a minor one. Sure. But like, because it made for a good moment, but like, I don't know. They're marked blue and red. They're not marked live and fake or something like <laughs> that. Like, what if you got the colors wrong, man? Seriously. Or what if somebody who was marking them got the colors wrong? And right? even if you had the code right and they messed it up. I guess something. he figured... It, it was, he figured, I'm just wasn't messing very with good Lorenzo's life, so it doesn't really matter that much. Yeah, it's just Lorenzo. And of course, your life. As soon as you gun this guy down in the middle of a police station, you're done those, too. Those cops who did not shoot at him were so slow on the draw, they should all lose their jobs because they should have all shot at him several times before he was done. He, he empties the full clip into Lorenzo. Oh yeah, the whole thing. Um, when Grant ends up in the engine intake on the plane... Uh, all I could think was that scene in The Incredibles where they're talking about... Uh, yeah, no capes. No capes. <laughs> right through the engine intake. I was I was grateful that it cut away because I thought, this is a, a movie that at least shows you a second of the guts. But they didn't. Yeah. They just cut away right there. And I was, I was surprised it didn't have more of an effect on the plane. I don't really know how much power those things have. Maybe they would just churn through a body, but like... Well, they say that birds strike engines all the time and just... Yeah, don't they cause bird. problems? They do if you go through like a flock, but a bird uh, will okay. not. I think a, I think a 
like he's a heavier dude. The mass of one major Grant is definitely. Is he's got a, how many birds, birds is that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're not you're not kidding. With their brittle bird bones, and he's got like regular people bones. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> he definitely would have effed up that plane. That's the real problem with this movie. <laughs> uh, I loved the, uh, the 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 part where <laughs> where Bruce Willis is on the ground and he lights the plane up with his lighter, and the, it and it's a race for the plane to take off or the flames from the trail of gas to catch up with the plane. I will say that that scene is almost worth the whole movie. That is such a cool fucking moment. I do like it, yeah. And I love and then, his exhausted Holly. There's the landing <laughs> lights. But then right after that, they're being like, "Hey, this fire! Now we know how to land." And the it's music, like, <laughs> the music changes to something like from National Lampoon's Vacation. At that point. It's so weird. <laughs> and it's just like this like marching band march as the planes come in one after the other. Yeah. And then they all park like two feet from each other. Like, so they have the ending scene in the movie and then like they slowly zoom out for the credits or whatever. Uh-huh. And like you see all the planes are there. It's like 18 planes <laughs> like within like spitting distance of each other. And you're like, what, what are you doing, guys? Go park at the... The My gate. question is, if you can <laughs> land that many planes that close together that soon after right. each one lands, then why are we always waiting for another runway when we're in the plane? No, these are some dynamite pilots. They could just, like, <laughs> land on dimes. And, these uh, are all Sully Sullenbergs. You know, the last guy sees all the other planes grouped up together. He's like, well, I don't want to be off all by myself. I'm going to go park <laughs> over there. Uh, I did not care for Holly's sign-off, which was, John, why does this keep happening to us? Uh, yeah. Come on, Holly. I mean, I love Bonnie Bedelia, but, like, her and character had nothing to do with this whole movie, man. I like Bonnie Bedelia, too. She was, I mean, she had a lot better, um, a lot better role in the first movie. She was just, just fodder for Dick Thornburg in this movie. There was nothing else for her to do. But at least she got a better deal than poor Al. He got one measly scene. See, what I thought this was going to end with her and Dick working together. I would have liked that a lot more. I think that would have been a much better play, like because they're both they're both pretty smart. Like he's a dick, but he's a good reporter. And yeah. I think if she if he'd said something about like something's going on, and Bonnie Bedelia would like put something together that John had told her or whatever. They almost did that, right? Then so they could work together to like communicate down there's below and like not have this weird, you know, taser sequence for no particular reason. There was that scene where the two of them are looking out the window at all the planes close by. And it was kind of along those lines, right? They're both kind of putting their heads together, literally in the window, putting their heads yeah. together. And they're both kind of sharing their observations about something weird is going on. And, and you're right. They could have gone right there and started teaming up i i think that was the play with them is to is yes he's a dick but like we've got something to do here which is we need to inform these other planes what's happening they could have saved lives i don't know they could have done something i like that a lot more that would have been a much better way to go i think uh marvin shows up to argyle the two of them away and that's the movie (laughs) um so Die Hard made $140 million. You want to take any guesses at how Die Hard 2 did at the box office? 
I want to say less, but I bet it was more. Oh yeah, it was more, all right. Yeah, so Die Hard made 140 million. Die Hard 2, 240 million. Yeah. Yeah. They gave that's the public that goes, what they man. Wanted. That's that's why he makes sequels. Yeah. This this is like the cookie cutter uh, form. This is the formula of what this is like. What executives are like? If we give them a higher body count, bigger explosions. <laughs> You're right. We're gonna make a hundred million more dollars, and they did. Kaboom. Um. There's just a couple of, of other points I, I wanted to mention. I have uh, if you if you got to set this at an international airport, um, let's say you are going to remake this movie. I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't. But let's say you were going to remake this movie. It was worth another go around in your in your opinion. You're going to remake it. I would. If you have to set this at an international airport, there's a couple of things you can't do anymore. Number one, you cannot have the old lady bringing weapons on board in her purse. <laughs> can't happen. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was cute that she said she, she she tasered her dog and the poor thing limped for a week. I thought it was adorable. But that would not she would not get through. <laughs> Why would you taser your dog? What a bitch. Even if it didn't Come like on, Brett, she seemed upset about it. She was regretful. <laughs> she just had to see Animal if it worked. abuse, man. Um, it was awful. The automatic weapons fire and dead bodies without shutting down the airport, like we said, can't do it anymore. Airport's shutting down. Yeah, no, that would have been the end of that. It is a very different world. Um, and this is something that you have mentioned on many different uh, movies we've discussed, which is that cell phones thwart terrorism in a lot of these scenarios. <laughs> yeah. I mean, bad guys just can't compete with cell phones. Cell phones connect everybody instantly about everything they need to communicate. I mean, they already kind of had that issue here. They talked about the air phones, and then they yeah. they just, you know, they put a lampshade on it, and we're just like, it's but we name. have all these other planes that don't have it. It's like, oh, we've got to keep them in the dark. And, yeah. like, with no real explanation for it, and it's like, fine, whatever. I realize your movie's ruined if you just divert all the planes. That was it, really. So. <laughs> that was really it. Um, and the, the huge electronics monitoring devices that the bad guys use also getting into the airport without any detection they're just carrying them around like like packages of of luggage these are these are enormous electronics monitoring equipment that they smuggle in to the airport to give them access to various things um this is what well, no wasn't that stuff at the at the church they wouldn't have had to take that through that the stuff was at the church but the three guys at the airport that mclean gets into the fight with in the conveyor belt room they were hooking oh, up. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you're right. They wouldn't have gotten as far as the conveyor belt route. Well, to be fair, they did smuggle in automatic weapons, so you assume they could smuggle in some electronics. This is true, yeah. So, I mean, like, it's not that I didn't enjoy Die Hard 2. I did. It's just that it didn't have anywhere near the, the heart or character that the first movie did. Like, even these people that we were seeing back, who we genuinely liked from the first movie... We, we really like John. We really like Holly. Um, but Holly is pretty much asleep in this movie. There's not much for her to do. And John feels less like himself and more like the action hero that he was in contrast to in the first one. Right? Yeah. What made him unique is just removed. Yeah. Like, he, he hops on a snowmobile and chases after these dudes. And <laughs> yeah. you're like, just let him escape. Who fucking cares, John? Yeah. This is, what are this you is not doing? you. 
Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's it just it's bummer. It was more like it was more like the guys in the executive boardroom were like, "Yeah, everyone loves Die Hard. It's the best action movie ever. So we're going to make it bigger and better and more explosions." And then, if there's a little guy in the back of the room who says, "But don't people like Die Hard because the character is not an action film star, and he's really <laughs> just an everyman?" And they're like, "Shut up, Maurice. We know what we're doing." And that's it. I wonder if Die Hard's staying power is more because of that, and maybe that's not actually what was so unique about it at the time. It's hard to it's hard to it's hard to know without you know <laughs> going back in time, and I wasn't of age um, anyway. But like, there hadn't been the action movie overflow at the time that Die Hard came out really like it was part of it yeah. like Die Hard Die Hard 2 and Lethal Weapon Lethal Weapon 2 and all these other like Commando all these other movies like came out in the span of a couple years I don't know that it was such a genre breaker unless you include all the other movies that came out around then yeah like when was when was like Predator and stuff like that like that that makes me think um I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm off base. I mean, I certainly think that now that's why it has so much staying power. Predator 2 was 1990, so at least Predator 1 had been out by now. I just feel like if you look at the Die Hard series, everybody's always agreed on how good the first one is. And then each one after that, I think, gets progressively less and less watchable. I don't really want to do it, but I'm curious if three is better than two, because I remember there's liking three. There's always next Christmas, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's a Christmas movie, I don't... Though, as I said. Well, didn't it come out, like, way later? Yeah, there's a definitely a, a bigger gulf in between movies, between two and three. I know that. 95. I guess it was five years later. That's not that big. But it could still very much be a movie for uh, Luma 90s. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I think that's everything that I wanted to hit. Do you have uh, anything else you wanted to go over before we say goodnight to the audience? Don't watch Die Hard 2. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. I will say uh, it is two. It is over two hours long. It is so long. But so is the first and one. It, the first one is over two and hours. It feels long. it. But Die Hard, uh, Die Hard one doesn't feel that long. There's no. always something going on. You have like a clear progression of what's happening. And Die Hard two is just like so much. Let's so, have a fight over here, and then let's have a fight over there about so something so that doesn't Brent fucking had to matter. Split it into two nights to watch it. The whole but, movie. Okay, well, that part is hard to blame Die Hard 2 for. It's more just me being an old man and having to go to sleep. <laughs> no, but I, I felt your pain because I realized as I was watching Die Hard, I was watching it in an afternoon. And as the end of the movie is finally approaching, I'm like, man, this is a long damn film. And then I looked yeah. up the running time of the original Die Hard. They're about the same. But you don't feel yeah. it watching that first movie at all. I think we even talked about it in our podcast about Die Hard is that it doesn't feel long, even though it is. Yeah. But man. It is a bloated Christmas special. And now we bring our own bloated Christmas special to a close. <laughs> um, 
Anyway, we uh, we just wanted to say thanks for tuning in. Uh, if this is your first episode, you uh, may want to go back and watch last year's Christmas special, the Die Hard Christmas movie. Um, and all Illuminati's episodes are gems in and of themselves, of course. I also think we should do a little house cleaning here. I do think our last episode was Die Hard. So, but in our defense, we were uh, taken out by a plague that hit the world. Yes. Just for posterity. The year is 2020. It blows. Yeah. That's why we didn't make any fucking podcasts. Things went (laughs) south quickly. Um, And usually our, our setup was... Go over, sit in Brent's living room and record a podcast, but we... Yeah, none anymore. of that. I don't trust Kelly. Yeah. Fuck that. I, uh, also, I just... uh, yeah, I think a lot of people in the pandemic had a lot of time off to do new hobbies and stuff like that. However, Kelly and I have kids, which means yes. yeah. all of that was over. There is There are no babysitters. There's no school. Everyone's always around all the time. So, yeah. no, we don't have a lot of time to watch a bunch of movies and do podcasts, so... But happily, Hopefully, uh, 2021, we will get back into it. Happily for Christmas, uh, my wonderful wife bought me this new microphone. So, uh, sounds good. If this uh, if this works, uh, we will be doing more uh, uh, remotely and just gazing at each other's lovely faces on screen as we record. So, and uh, we'll see. I I made a pitch. To Kelly, we'll see if he goes for it to do Wonder Woman 84. <laughs> I am all for it. It's got 84 <laughs> right in the title. I think it's Right in the title. Who's Dark? Donated. If, if Die Hard 2 is an 80s movie, then definitely Wonder Woman 84 is. You will get no argument from me. I, I say it's fair game. Um, well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy New yep. Year, everybody. Um, we are just about to sign off for 2020 and say goodbye to this miserable year um 2021 will be so much better for everyone we are certain of it and you'll have more illuminatis to look forward to uh yeah see you later everybody and uh until next time until next time we've done our job hollywood (laughs) you do yours but not remaking die hard not that no (laughs) 